Welcome back to Your 1230, the only podcast where our guests tell their story with the help of 12 questions in 30 minutes. Today, we are thrilled to be joined by Andrew Sirius. Andrew has been investing in real estate for over a decade and is a partner with Stewardship Investments, LLC, along with his brother, Philip, and father, Bill. Stewardship Investments focuses on buy and hold, and particularly the Burr strategy, buying, rehabbing, and renting out houses and apartments throughout the Kansas City area. Today, Andrew has over 300 properties and just under 500 units. Stewardship Properties on the whole was founded by Bill in 1989 and has just over 1,000 units in six states. Andrew, welcome. We are really excited to have you here. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you for sure. And I kind of want to start there with um, the the Burr strategy. How did you determine that was the uh, right fit for you guys, or what did you try before that? Well, I, I think we were doing Burr before it had a name. I, I, I remember starting to hear that that term being thrown around sometime around 2015, I think, and we've been doing that since probably the beginning of the decade. Before that, I, I joined, my, my, my father started a company back in Oregon uh, buying campus rentals, which was a great niche back in the day. Particularly, he'd buy kind of, not the ones right next to the campus, world campus rentals, but like the next next ring around the campus. A lot of people just renting him out, you know, out as house or living there. And so he would like arbitrage from like a homeowner or a renter into a campus rental and then take the, the property and and add as many bedrooms as he could find and maybe cut it into a duplex, do anything like that because campus rentals tend to rent out by the bedroom. And so that uh, way he could increase the rent 50% or thereabout uh, for student if you set the property up for students. That worked really well for a while. It eventually got discovered. But by the time I joined him, I graduated from the University of Oregon where he built his company around. Uh, we got into fix and flip. Uh, a lot of, uh, particularly as the crash started happening, um, that was around... Uh, 07 when we started and so oh it was not the time to be buying and holding <laughs> and uh so we were doing a lot of flipping at that point uh we did some short sales uh th that kind of that was great and then it dried up and eventually wanted to get back into buy and hold because that was kind of kind of where he started where i think the real long-term wealth in real estate is and we followed a friend out to Kansas City who was buying out of state. And it just, it's a lot cheaper in KC than it is in the West Coast, even though like Eugene, Oregon is not like, you know, San Francisco or LA, but it's still quite expensive. And it, it just cash flows a lot better. And so like our family, our extended family, our family's originally from KC, our extended family's there. So, uh, you know, I came out, my brother joined me about nine months later and we Basically, we're getting into buy and hold. We were originally planning on doing apartments, maybe even syndications. But we, we kind of, the way our, our financing, our private lenders has been doing houses, it was just really set up well to do that. And it's like, well, we're not we're not really flipping the house, but we're, we're flipping the debt from a private loan into a bank loan once we've got it fixed up and rented. And so we were just doing that. And then eventually, like, I just didn't have a term for it. It was like, uh, it was like flipping, but instead of selling, we refinance. And then somebody, I think, I think it was Brandon Turner. He's at least the one I heard it from. Started calling it Burr. And I'm like, okay, that's what we do. <laughs> so I think uh, the term found us more than the other way around. Very nice. No, I love the backstory. And I want to just follow up. You mentioned you know, your dad starting with the uh, campus rentals and then your brother and yourself focusing on houses because it was market driven. 
first question, how important is it to have a, a specific niche have you found to, to be successful? Because uh, you'll sometimes hear that diversification, uh, diversification is the way to go, uh, but it sounds like you both have specific niches based on what the market called for. How important has that been? I, I think in general, like real estate investment is is sort of a business activity. And it's not like when you're talking about diversification, that's more of like your, your portfolio, your retirements, savings account. That, I mean, absolutely. But that you should be diversified. You're, you don't want to put all of your retirement to one basket. With real estate investment, it's more of a business activity and you don't want to be you know, trying to be a, you know, G, you know, like a, a car company and a, you know, a tech company and a finance company and an oil company. And it's, it's one major thing. And so you should have a general or, or not general, you should have a specific focus and whether it be, or, or they should be synergistic. Like if a lot of flippers hold a handful, I think it's a great way to raise money for your down payments, flip a house, use that money to let, use that cash to buy another one, flip another house. You maybe that this money you live off of you, then you have uh, enough for, you know, uh, a buy and hold down payments so is flip, flip, buy and hold, flip, flip, hold kind of thing that works. Th those work synergistically together. I want to see those as separate things, but I think generally you want to have a particular niche that is, if not all the majority, the large majority of your focus, it, the shiny object syndrome gets a lot of investors and business owners and they start doing a little bit of this dipping their toe and you re to really master something you need to spend a lot of time and energy on it. So I want to say like if a great opportunity comes your way, if you're doing student rentals and a great opportunity comes away, that's a few miles outside of this, the campus and doesn't make sense for that, that you shouldn't do that. Or if there's a house that's perfect for, you know, perfectly set up for an Airbnb, uh, has lots of rooms and, and, and it would be, you know, just really close to like a, a downtown or an urban a major center, which bring in a lot of traffic. And it's not saying you shouldn't, you shouldn't do that. We do a couple Airbnbs, especially as the market has gotten more, uh, it's gotten tougher to cash flow as the prices have gone up so much. Uh, we're trying to you know, add in some Airbnbs and stuff like that to make our cash flow better. But that, you know, in general, in general, you should be very specific. I guess that sounds kind of oxymoronical or whatever, but yeah, I would not want to be jumping into all sorts of different things. You want to have a major focus and then maybe some, uh, you know, dipping your toe here or there to see how another market works or to supplement, or if they work synergistically together, like flipping and holding uh, some of them. But I, I would not be in favor of doing a little bit of everything. A master of all trades is really a, or a jack of all trades is really a master of none. No, no, that's thank you. That's one of the best answers I've heard to that question, because sometimes you'll get the, uh, you know, it's we try to do a little bit of everything just to take advantage of, of market shifts. But as you said, do what you do best and do that most often, but don't close off other opportunities and be smart enough to know when they present themselves. So I think that's that's a Absolutely. good way to look at it um, with with fixing, with flipping, holding some properties, it's a lot of different skill sets, even in that niche. What do you consider your expertise or what do you bring to those transactions or, or to the company? Well, I think my main expertise is analyzing properties, finding them, uh, negotiating those deals, and then also putting together, particularly the, the, the rehab and the financing. Most of the time, I, I used to do all the rehab analysis and oversight myself. We've hired somebody that oversees that now. Uh, so, but, so I, I, I oversee the oversight, but um, generally it's finding the properties, negotiating the deals, evaluating them, and then the financing angle, particularly the, the backend financing uh, with getting the, the bank loans and stuff like that. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. And your 
for lack of a better word, your content is absolutely everywhere. Uh, I, I love it in the Thank many different forms. <laughs> Starting with some of the articles you write for Bigger Pockets, how mm -hmm. how did you get involved in producing information for others to consume to either uh, learn a little bit more, to supplement their business, to take them to the next level? How did you get started, and where can can listeners find you if they want to find you in other mediums? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the two best places to find me are on Bigger Pockets, where I write for them on a more or less weekly basis and also on youtube the serious brothers my last name s-y-r-i-o-s me and my brother release a video about every week or thereabout uh, and so those are the two best places to find me i think generally i've always always liked writing and so i i it kind of was a natural fit and i got on bigger pockets i, I liked how they kind of took out you know took on the gurus a little bit um and and sort of like the those were doing the uh you know, the $10,000 boot camps and whatnot. It was sort of a, an area where investors and want and, and people who are looking to become investors, aspiring investors can get together and share ideas and, and, and the rest of it. And I, I thought I had, you know, I had something to offer this and I like writing. And so I eventually asked, just asked them whether I, I write for them and have been doing it ever since, I think ever since 2014 or thereabout. Um, I think I, I'm close to 250 articles for them, but that I, I think if you can, blog for bigger pockets or another one of these was i've also written for like think realty and and uh an rei club some of these other sites or set up your own blog or your own youtube channel uh or or get involved in some way like that i think that helps build your reputation it helps networking we've had private lenders actually reach out to us people who were interested in private lending just because they found me before and also helps with like building your own like establishing your reputation once you're talking to somebody uh, so if you're talking to a prospective private lender uh, or even perhaps a prospective seller on a, a larger property, maybe they're worried that you can, whether you can close or not, showing them your, your, your output in these, in other places, if you are inclined to write or, or make videos or things like that. I mean, if this is not up your alley, I'm not saying just force yourself to, but I do think it is, uh, it has been a major benefit for us. And so I do think it would be something to look into um, if, if you're inclined to do that kind of thing. And I know there's plenty of sites out there that are wanting, you know, definitely wanting to get content. They usually don't pay or they don't pay very much. Uh, or maybe they offer you some perks, but I think overall it's a long-term play, but I think it is quite beneficial. Yeah. You hit the big things there that it's not something that's going to necessarily be overnight, uh, life-changing. And if that's what you're looking for, and it's, one thing that we do talk about a lot here is the show versus tell distinction. You can tell these private lenders, you can tell uh, people they work with, we're great. We've done this so many times. Take it. But when you actually have things that you can show, either past deals, you've got a catalog of articles, videos, it makes it it makes it more credible, more reputable, and there are there's things to discuss there. It's uh, it's social proof. It, it like people don't want to be the first to uh, you know to try something. They don't want to be if you're a doctor or a, you know, a chiropractor or whatever, nobody wants to be your first patient. Um, they want to know that you've been there and done that. And even if you haven't been there and done that, there are things that you can show that uh, about like maybe your work experience, maybe you graduated from business school or maybe you put together a really good business plan or, or you know, those kinds, kinds of things. Uh, anything you have that you can, you can create a prospectus or you've written for some things, you know, you write for a, a, a website like like Bigger Pockets or, or another major uh, website on business or real estate it's like okay well somebody thinks you're good enough to write for them or or um you know it's the same, the same benefit of, of getting referrals uh which is another major thing these things are 
are really important with regards to proving to other people that, you know, other people, if, if they think that other people trust you, there's more reason that you should be trusted by them. Uh, yeah, no one, no one wants to be the first. And if they are the first and everyone has to start somewhere, they want to know that you have, you know, whatever you can show them. So it's like, don't, it, it's, uh, you know, if, if somebody comes from the business world or has a, you know, if, even if it's like completely unrelated, if it's impressive, you know, show that, that will, is people generally think and are generally right. I think if you're, if you're successful in something, if you're a successful architect or something like that, then that, that should uh, at least transition over to the fact that you are a well put together and know what you're doing and, and don't go at things, you know, in a kind of scattershot and un, unprofessional and, and unprepared sort of way. So anything and everything you can use to show, uh, that you know what you're doing and, and again that, that if you're talking to a prospective potential private lender you haven't done any deals yeah, you can put together a business plan right uh, show the books you've read the market analysis you've done kind of you know walk them through a potential deal that you uh, you've done in your own resume everything you can in that respect um and i think writing for these types of websites or doing videos things like that is just another thing i would say don't think of it as like you're not going to write especially on the internet these days where there's a million websites and there's all you know youtube has more, it's literally impossible, even if you spend all of your waking hours at 2.5 speed to watch everything that's been posted there, or even half, or even a tenth. And um, so this is not something that you're likely going to become rich from, or it's not even likely going to make money. It's not, a, your goal really isn't to make money from it. It's to build your reputation in order to be able to facilitate, you know, getting sellers to trust you, getting private lenders to trust you, getting banks to trust you, uh, you know, and, and the like. Yeah, that that's a the way you wrap up there is a, another excellent point that it is it's not necessarily the direct uh, direct money making activity, but it's it's an ancillary activity that will lead to that social proof, lead to that credibility, lead to other avenues to generate uh, business. Uh, there is uh, there is go ahead. Uh, no, I was, I was just gonna say yeah, absolutely, and I guess I'd add one thing: if you have an office, like your own office. Uh, even if it's in like a we work type place or something like that, meeting with somebody there versus at a restaurant or at your home, especially that that also adds something. So if you do have an office, if you don't, it's OK. My dad started by using Wendy's as his office, just with, like for signing leases, just to be more professional. But if you do have something like that, meeting there uh, is, again, another form of social proof. So it's like what you know, take what you have into account. And then utilize it the best you can. So if you, if it's, you don't, well, okay, that's fine. Don't worry. He'll get there sooner or later. Uh, but, but if you do, yeah, I mean, don't, you know, if you're meeting with a potential private lender, try to meet them at your office or if you're meeting with, yeah, and versus to show them like, hey, I have a, I have a place of business. I do, I'm, you know, I'm professional, like all those subconscious things that, that go through from things like that. I'm, I'm glad you said that because that, that just, highlights the point that you brought up last that you want to amplify the things that you've done and even if it's different things something that may not be exactly what you're looking to do or might not be you know they might actually be the first show them that you're professional and what you've what you've done and just highlight it spotlight it uh, so you can build off of it yeah absolutely I did want to ask the distinction between creating video, writing articles. They are somewhat different skill sets. You are displaying your expertise in either written or video form. Do you have a preference? And if so, uh, how how have you been able to uh, leverage them both? Well, I, I prefer writing. Um, I, I do want, I, I like videos too, but it's a little bit more of a, 
I don't know. I guess some of the challenges with videos is one, if you're just speaking in front of a, these days, it's hard to get away with just speaking in front of a camera. You know, everything's got to be edited and all the rest of that. And so it's like, just another layer. Whereas, whereas, you know, editing an article is extremely fast, you know, basically reread it and make sure I didn't make any grammatical mistakes and add anything that I think of and stuff like that. A video can be quite long or you got to pay for it. And then you got to find an editor that's, you know, decent enough that they can, you know, add in titles and, you know, that nowadays with YouTube videos in particular, because everybody has the ADHD, you know, it's like, you know, cut, you know, cut out any ums and uhs and breaths and the like and stuff. And so that part is, is challenging. I think also just maintaining with, with writing, I, I feel it's easier for me at least because I can, I can put all my thoughts and paper and then I can change it and whatnot. It's a little more challenging with, with, when it comes to videos i found like it's a lot easier doing it with my brother and playing off of him we have a kind of a you know loose script that we go off of key points we want to hit when i've tried to do videos just by myself i end up going a lot longer i, I you know i get i get off on side tracks i start you know I, I lose my train of thought and then i gotta stop and then i gotta and then editing it becomes even more challenging because there's so many breaks in it and all the like um, I think some people are just naturally like just talking and kind of going where it, where it, where it leads and whatnot um some people hate writing my brother hates writing um so it's different for everyone i i enjoy making videos i prefer writing though um so i guess that's just my my taste probably why i started started writing and for bp and doing that kind of thing back you know eight years ago where i've only been doing videos for about two years no it makes sense and you you bring up your brother and another area i'd like to kind of dive into as i'd like to on the show is the idea of having a partner and in your case, it's it's a family member, uh, your brother, pretty pretty as close to uh, you know family members you can get. So, what is it like to have uh, somebody that you you know knows you very intimately, knows you very well, as your business partner as well as your brother? What does that look like, and how did that start? Yeah, well, I mean, again, it started with my my dad, and then my brother joined. My brother was a professional poker player, and then they uh, I don't know if you know the history behind this, but you know he's they they didn't quite shut down, but they really dropped the hammer on online poker around 2010 or thereabout. And so he was looking for something else to get into and, and basically found real estate and then kind of moved up and eventually we added him in the partnership kind of thing. We started showing how, how good he was at it. But <clears throat> with regards to partnerships, I mean, a lot, you know, partnerships have a bad record of, of failure and family partnerships, I think are a little bit more risky in, in a way because you're also risking your personal relationship. So I think it's, it's really important. It's really important in a couple of ways. One, if you are partnering with somebody in general, you don't want them to have the exact same skill set as you. If somebody is really outgoing and good with like communicating and, and schmoozing the, the sellers, private lenders, you know, whoever, find, you know, talking to people, getting out there, you know, uh, pounding the pavement, finding contractors and the like, that's great. The other one's very analytical and good at, at crunching the numbers and putting together spreadsheets and getting banks what they need in the counter side. That, that's a great partnership. The two people are exactly the same or very similar. That's not the best, generally speaking. So my, my, my dad is great with finding private lenders, with negotiating, things like that. I'm more analytical. Um, my brother's kind of probably in between those two things. So I think it makes it works pretty well. That's a general thing. When it comes to family, I think you have to, it, it's good if you don't, if, you, if you're the type of person who's pretty high tempered, whatnot, I mean, which it, it's probably something to be very careful with any sort of family, family, you know, husband, wife, brother, sister, that kind of thing. 
I think you always have to remember that like this business is, is secondary to the relationship. And so you have to kind of be able to keep those things separate because there are going to be disagreements and there's probably going to be some heated ones. And, and, and it, particularly in entrepreneurial business, it can get pretty stressful, especially in the early going. So those are things to keep in mind before starting something like that. I think it's very important to remember to keep um, with any sort of partnership is one, you know, have a good partnership agreement, make sure that there is a way that you can unwind this without becoming arch enemies. If that comes to be, make sure you have different skill sets, make sure you get along well. And uh, it should, it, it, if you're not getting along at the beginning, you're, it's going to get worse. You know, so, <laughs> and, uh, and then with, particularly with family and whatnot, it's make sure that everyone is the, is relatively cool-headed. Uh, you know, everyone, of course, everyone gets angry and the like, but it's pretty cool-headed and that you all are com committed to keeping, you know, the relationship uh, above any sort of business disagreement. So that those are, you know, because it, it is, in a lot of ways, it's beneficial. You can talk, you know, you can talk business at any time. You you know how the other person thinks. It's it's uh, oftentimes you're, you're very, um, you know, you're very much on the same page, but at the same time, uh, it's, it, it is a bit more riskier to do it that way. Yeah. Thank you for, for kind of going, going through that with your personal experience and then, yeah. uh, making it applicable to others because what, what I hear a lot of in that answer and you nailed them both was having somebody that has complementary skills and personality fit along with, um, establishing boundaries or some sort of, uh, I think you said that having the family relationship that that's primary and that the business is going to be secondary. So understanding yeah. either where one stops and the other starts or understanding that there are more layers to this, that it has to kind of, uh, kind of fit. And I would, I would think over how you would dissolve the partnership beforehand. If it comes to it, like nobody wants to think about that. No one wants to create any you know, prenup for your business, but like how, if this doesn't work, and that's not necessarily, I, I'm not, it's also like, what if somebody just decides like, completely like there's no issues between you but just like i don't want to do real estate anymore you know real estate isn't for everyone i you know i want to become an actor and follow my dreams or whatever um you need to have a way to unwind like just kind of a thought process you don't need to have like a specific like you know press x and then the whole thing explodes but just like uh some sort of idea of how how would we unwind this if that came to be that should be a thought that 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 you put down you know that you 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 go over especially when uh, it's it's a lot better to do that when both parties are are happy with each other than trying to figure that out when say one side is not so pleased with the other. That yeah, doing these things up front, you know, the more you prepare up front for stuff, the easier it is. Uh, the lazy man does twice the work, kind of thing. Well said. I'd like that. I've never heard that before. I never. Like that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I wanted to also ask. Um, we're talking toward the end of October. Uh, the the market has had quite uh, quite a year here in 2022, but as yeah. <laughs> as we've, we've discussed, that uh, you, your company is one that has has grown and continues to grow in the market. Mm -hmm. How have you been able to kind of sustain that growth, and what what types of things are you doing toward the end of the year that you may not have been doing at the beginning of the year? Well, we've really gotten into buying portfolios. This has been something we've been doing for a while now, uh, particularly like mid-sized portfolios of houses and small multifamily properties. So, you know, like the, not anymore, but for a time, the hedge funds were really big on buying like a hundred houses and stuff like that. And um, 
you know, people were saying like Wall Street is is trying to buy it up, make everyone aware. That really wasn't the case. I think at the peak, Wall Street owned like six hundred sixty thousand of the eighty five million houses on the market. But you know, so it wasn't really a big big number. But that they were looking for those types of portfolios and and really nice areas. And then most investors were looking for a house or maybe a duplex, a couple of things. But very few. We're looking for 10 houses or, or you know if, you know five duplexes and four houses and a triplex or something like that so we bought we bought a couple of those we had a really big one back in about 97 houses back in 2015 at one shot that was quite the, the the big one this year we bought particularly at the beginning several portfolios and it's just kind of opportunity based as they come as we find them from you know one was listed in the market one was brought by a wholesaler one was one we almost got uh like four years ago and the guy decided to sell and so it wasn't as good a deal as it would have been then but it's still a good deal right now as the market has turned and i mean this was something that you know i didn't know when it was gonna happen but it was obviously it's obviously bound to happen uh you know we had reached the limits of affordability people just and then also rates were extremely low and inflation is extremely high and when inflation is like two to almost three times as much as the interest rate, you know, I got a home mortgage on my personal residence uh, back in late 2021 at 3% fixed for 30 years. And it's like, and now an interest and inflation is 9% or thereabout for this year. That is completely incoherent. Like if you're borrowing, they're basically paying you to borrow money and that can't last. So this was bound to happen. But I think unlike, I, I would say, you know, obviously I don't have a crystal ball, um, you take, take every prediction I have to say or anyone has to say with a grain of salt. But I think there are some major differences that make me not really nervous about the housing market right now. I am maybe a bit more nervous, say, about like the European energy markets or the uh, perhaps the Chinese debt, sovereign debt crisis or um, or Credit Suisse or Deutsche Bank. I could see real estate being hit by something that drags it, but like drags the entire economy down it, with it. But there's several key points, I think, about the real estate market that differ between this time and last time. One, the the ninja loans, the you know, the stated income stuff, the people who have a 400 credit, you know, they, they, they have a pulse so they get a loan. That is mostly gone. Um, the if you look at just like the credit ratings of like people in the 500s were made up something like, oh, I had I had an article on this just a short while ago. They had they something like 30 percent of loans prayers in 2006, 2007. Right now, it's like less than five percent. Uh, so the credit worthiness of borrowers has been much stronger. The everyone the, the teaser rates are gone. Everyone has a fixed rate mortgage. Like there's no reason to sell. The, like I, I got a three percent mortgage that's fixed for the next thirty years. Even our, our business loans, our uh, you know our investment loans are like four and a half percent fixed for five years. What is the point of selling? I I can't ever see refinancing yourself <laughs> my current property, and I think most people are thinking that way. And you see, I've heard it called the seller strike. Like inventory, like new listings are shrinking dramatically, and I think you're going to see that for the next however long this lasts. I think there's going to be a lot less mobility or like physically moving in the United States. A lot less people moving from one place to the next. I think uh, listings are down like 25% since they started raising interest rates. Inventory is up quite a bit, still below historical normal. I think it's like three months of inventory. A normal market is six, if that's balanced. So I think what you're going to see is you're going to see a lot of chicken little screaming while the market returns to some semblance of normality because 2020 and 2021 were completely insane uh, sellers markets. And so anything going anywhere near a buyer's market will feel like a crash, even though it's not. Um, 
And then I think you're also you also still have a housing shortage. There's way you know they they overcorrected for for a lot of things after the crash. They stopped building. They made lending much harder. They regulated it you know really badly, really really strongly. Uh, and and lenders and builders were were scared to get back into it. So we you know in 2020 there's a 3.8 million unit housing shortage according to Freddie Mac. And then that was before COVID shut down construction for six months and then oscillating back and forth. So you have you know, they are building a lot now, but that's going to also be hamstrung because interest rates are high and it's hard to make these properties work anymore. So you have a housing shortage, you have fixed rate debt, you have uh, and you have a fixed rate, low interest debt. And then you have also credit worthy buyers. And also you have people who bought anytime before 2021, 2021 or before they have 20% equity in their house, even if they got a, you know an FEA, um, FHA loan at 3.5% down. So the market have to drop a lot. And in general, you have an inflationary environment. So I think, you know, at, at first I thought real estate prices would basically stagnate and nominally they would stagnate. They would, they just hit and then, but in real prices, because inflation is going up, they would drop in real prices. But at large part, I thought that because I, I didn't think that the Fed had the political will to really jack rates through the roof. And I mean, I six, in, you know, they're, they're in the sixes now, but uh, that's not historically high, but compared to home values, if you look at home values are much higher. So in the historical sense, if you compare those two, like the average, you know, like wages versus the cost to of a mortgage in total, like it is still high. Uh, and so I didn't think they would do that quite as hard. So now I, I do think house prices will fall. I think um, I think they'll probably fall 10 to 15 percent in nominal terms, 20 five to 30 percent in real terms which sounds pretty bad um but i don't think people are really going to feel it because there's not going to be a foreclosure crisis unless something happens in a different market that causes the entire economy to collapse like you know deutsche bank goes under yeah, germany completely collapses uh china collapse, you know that's something like that pulls everything down with it maybe um, but if that doesn't happen, I'd eat this, the, the difference, what would be required for there to be another real estate collapse is a foreclosure crisis, a crisis of defaults, which I just don't think is in the cards, especially since I don't think the government would allow that. I still believe the political will, like they're not going to allow, especially with how divided things are today. They're not going to allow another housing crisis. They will bail out homeowners, no matter what it does to inflation. And so I think those things make me think the, um, the real estate market is going to, soften a lot, sink some, soften a lot, stagnant for years to come. And so buying for appreciation is not the right thing to do. But because it is going to be soft, there will be some foreclosures. There are going to be more uh, people that have a very hard time getting out of their house. And if they need to move, they, they need to. Or there might be some subject to opportunities. If you can subject to one of those 3% mortgages, you know, that that's a huge opportunity. Of course, you got to be honest with it until, you know, and people are going to be if you suffer to a loan from them and you never pay it off, that will make it harder for them to uh, borrow on another property uh, because they're, that loan stays in their name. So you need to be very bored with them, maybe. But there are some people who aren't looking to do that. and Or maybe you can make an agreement to hold it for five years or something along those lines. Uh, but that could be a major opportunity coming up. There are going to be more opportunities to buy, but you're going to need to get your equity up front because I don't, I don't see the market. It's not going to collapse, but I don't see it I don't see it appreciating much. Not, not for the next... Got any prediction over five years is probably just complete foolishness. So let's say over the next five years, I suspect it'll be very, it'll drip down, go down for the next 12 months and then just kind of stagnate.
that, that's my best prediction. Okay. Well, thank you for walking us through that. Uh, we, we've spent a good amount of our time today yeah. talking about real estate and what you what your day-to-day profession looks like. To wrap up here, what do you do when you are not involved in real estate investing and writing and, and producing content? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I play guitar. I very much like doing that. Um, yeah, I, I Getting outdoors, some hiking or camping, working out, uh, you know, going to gym and stuff like that. Um, I, I want to travel more. I just recently went to the Bigger Pockets Conference in San Diego, which was a lot of fun. I'm going to go back to Oregon here for Christmas to see the, the folks. Um, but yeah, I would like to I, I travel some, but not as much as I prefer. So uh, that is, I guess, and then always, you know, a good happy hour. A good Friday happy hour is also always, uh, always a good thing, too. Those are all good answers. I'm going to follow <laughs> up on the guitar. Do you play bass? Do you play uh Electric, what guitar do you do your uh, choice? Acoustics, generally. Acoustic. Uh, you know, I'm not in a band or anything like that. So uh, acoustic is, you know, just playing the bass guitar by yourself is, or even electric, you know, it's like, there's kind of, those ones really sort of need to be in an ensemble of some sort. I mean, they don't need, not to just practice, but to like actually play something. Uh, acoustic is the best if you're just, if you're just wanting to you know, play on your own. Agreed there. Okay. Well, you play as well? Uh, no, I have a good ear for music, <laughs> but I am uh, not musically inclined myself. So uh, that I, I can <laughs> I, I can appreciate it, and I yeah. I can tell good from bad, and I like music, but no, I'm uh, I'm an awful musician myself. So <laughs> thank you for asking. <laughs> no Sorry uh, to put you on the spot there. <laughs> no, that's that's fine. Uh, anybody who knows me knows that, so anybody who listens <laughs> to this knows that as well. Um, so we'll post the YouTube channel, post uh, links to the Bigger Pockets articles anywhere else our listeners can find you if they want to find more, Andrew. I um, mean, you can find me on Facebook, just Andrew Sirius. Uh, I don't, there's probably one or two other ones, but I'm, uh, yeah, uh, there aren't very many Siriuses here. Uh, but yeah, the, really the Sirius Brothers on YouTube and Bigger Pockets are definitely the best places to find me. Excellent. So we'll post all that. Oh, and, and I actually the Substack too. I do have a Substack, the Sirius Brother. Uh, you can find me there as well for short pieces on kind of mostly on how the economy is doing and how the real estate market and things like that. Very nice. And then just lastly, anything I didn't ask you today that I probably should have, Andrew. Oh, anything. I, I think, um, I think one, we, we should probably explain what a short sale is in case somebody doesn't miss that because this is or not a short sale subject to uh, subject to is when you buy a property subject to the existing financing. So you buy the property, but you leave the loan in place. Uh, the bank has the right to call that loan due. So you have to be prepared for that. They virtually never do, although maybe this will be different because we're talking about interest rates of 3%, 2%, whatever. And you know the going rate right now is what, six and a half, seven, seven and a half percent. So I, they haven't in the past, maybe they will this time, but there could be an opportunity there to buy subject to existing financing. And that is something I think people should be uh, looking into, especially since it could fill, fit a need with a lot of people, they don't want to, uh, they don't want to move uh, or they want to move, but they, they, they don't want to sell in this market. And I completely understand that. So I think that's, that's important to note. Other than that, I mean, we could go into all sorts of other topics, but I don't think we'll be here <laughs> next. you know, how, who knows how long we'd go. No, thank you for cleaning that up. I think that's important because both it is mm-hmm. something that we're probably going to see more of and is not something that's mm-hmm. commonly uh, in practice. So thank you for, for that. Thank you for your time today. Andrew. this was a lot of fun and um, I look forward to doing it again. Absolutely. Thank you. I appreciate it. You got it. Take care. You too.